Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter number 1. As you can see, we're going to observe Lord's Supper after the uh, service this evening. I'll try to be brief, and uh, we'll do that right after the invitation. We'll, uh, we'll go straight from the service into that this evening, and then afterwards we'll have time of fellowship in our Life Center. Man, I appreciate the Lord meeting with us this morning. Uh, we don't deserve that, you know. Uh, if, if this thing was, was about good looks, he wouldn't stop by my place, amen. And uh, nobody said nothing when I said that, did they? If it was about talent, he wouldn't stop by my place. I ain't talking about your place, I'm talking about my place, amen. Don't get nervous. Y'all too easily offended, amen. Per- hey, listen, perfect peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Amen. Even some preacher making comments won't offend them. Amen. But I'm glad he just by his own grace and mercy, he meets with us. Amen. We don't deserve it, but what a precious God that he is, that he would do that very thing. Acts chapter number one tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse number six. We'll read down to verse number 11. Acts chapter number one, verse number six. The Bible says, when they therefore were come together, they, the disciples, asked of him, Jesus, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, if you don't know uh, where we're at in our Bible here in Acts chapter number 1, this is after Calvary, this is after the empty tomb, this is during that 40-day period of time, uh, after our Lord was risen before He ascended to heaven. And in fact, on this morning, uh, it is the morning that He will ascend into the presence of the Father and leave behind uh, His disciples. And so before he goes, they ask this question, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the authority of the Word of God. Thank you that it is true. We haven't come to a book tonight to find out what's true uh, about it, but to learn what's true from it. And Lord, help us as we approach your Word tonight to do so with a godly, holy reverence. And help us to have our hearts open to the truth of it. We can very easily, Lord, I know this, we can come and we can sit and we can be talked at and we can be sung at and we can just go home unchanged. But Lord, that's not my desire here tonight. And I pray it not be the desire of any person that's in this place that they would not have come as a matter of form or formality or ritual. But Lord, that they would have come to really hear from you tonight and for you to receive glory through their obedience. Lord, help us to receive openly the word of God that it might transform our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, Acts chapter number 1 is really the transitional moment of a transitional book. 
The book of Acts is detailing and recording for us the transition uh, from uh, the Old Testament uh, into a new way that God will operate in this world. Uh, his attention has been turned away from Israel temporarily and to the New Testament church. And of that transitional book, this moment is probably the most transitional moment in this transitional book. For the Lord Jesus is ascending to heaven. Much would change for the reality of the disciples. I mean, you understand they had spent years by now living in His presence and dwelling with Him. And He was always there. If they ever wanted to talk to Him, they'd just turn over uh, to Him and, and say, Lord, and ask Him a question, and He could answer it for them. If they ever got nervous and, and worried about the, the things in life that were besetting them, they could turn, they could look to Jesus, and He'd remind them that everything was going to be okay. He was with them. If they were desirous to see the work of God in their life, all they had to do was pay attention when Jesus spoke and when Jesus acted, and they could readily, immediately see the work of God in action in their lives. And now all of that is beginning to change for them. He's going to ascend to heaven. They'll still be able to talk to Him, but it won't be in His presence. It'll be through prayer. They'll still enjoy His presence, but it will not be His physical presence in an earthly sense, but rather His perpetual presence in a spiritual sense. And while they've been used to seeing the work of God immediately, presently in their lives, actively in that moment, because they could see it dispensed by the hands of the Savior, now they're going to have to see it dispensed by the providence and working of God. He won't quit working, but they're going to have to look for it in a different way than they've looked for it before. Everything is changing and transitioning in their lives at this moment. And I'm struck by the fact that the Lord Jesus, He did not grant unto them everything they wanted as He departed, but He did give to them everything they needed as He departed. You understand, He is the Master. They're the disciples. He is letting out to them a stewardship in His absence. Paul described it as filling up in our flesh that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. The Bible describes us as fellow laborers together with God, that God is using our lives to impart and impact this world around us. And so as the Master is leaving, the servants are staying, there are some things He wants to leave with them so that they can carry out the work. I'm glad to report to you that every time the master leaves, if he wants the servant to accomplish the work, he's going to have to leave to him everything he might need. He's going to have to meet his needs in his absence. And he's going to have to leave him the instructions that he needs to carry out the work that he's called to do. Can I report to you, hey, he meets every need that we have. He don't give us everything we want, but he does give us everything we need. And in doing so, He has left for us instructions as to how we are to live our lives. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. What He left when He left. I mean, I understand that there's a sense in which He's present everywhere. He is God. God is omnipresent. But the Bible repeatedly describes Him not as present in this world during this dispensation, but rather as seated at the right hand of the Father. Certainly in regards to his awareness and his knowledge and his reach, he is present everywhere. But he is right now in a place, and that place is seated at the right hand of God. And so in order for you and I to carry out as his body in this world the work that he's called us to do, when he left, he left us some things that we need for this. 
And I want you to notice three of them tonight, and then we'll have the Lord's Supper and be done this evening. Look with me at verse number 6. The Bible says this, When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Let me say number one tonight, he left them with a word of patience. Now, we have a funny idea about patience, I guess because we're so unfamiliar with it as a people. Patience is not waiting. Because I will tell you this, I've got two sons. They, If you don't think you can impatiently wait, you just come stand with us at a restaurant sometime while we're waiting on our seat to be called for. They'll show you what it means to impatiently wait. Waiting is not a virtue. You know how I know that? Because very few people do it willingly. I'll tell you, in my life, there's very few times that I want to wait. I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, if I could just live in, in a world without consequences and I pulled up to the drive-thru and there's 18 cars in front of me, I'd just start running into them. I just, I'm talking about world with no consequences. I'd drive something big enough I could push them all out of the way and get up and get my food. No, it's no virtue waiting, but you know what patience is? Patience is waiting with the right spirit and with the right attitude. And he teaches them here that if they are to navigate this world, to serve him, to please him, and to keep a right attitude, then they're going to need patience. We could say this, this word of patience that's given is given to direct our attitude. Man, we need a good attitude. We do. We really do. We don't talk about that very often. I don't know why, but we don't. But we ought to have a good attitude in the Lord. Rejoicing in Him. Pleasant, pleased, excited for what God has done in our lives. And He gives us here a foundational truth to having a right attitude and to be patient. Notice the anticipation of the disciples here. They ask an interesting question. When they therefore were come together... They asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? I'll once again use my children as an example because we live in the house with them. So, you know, we're always bumping into each other. (laughs) And um, the disciples have, we could say, a very childlike attitude towards the concept of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't want to be too critical of them. But what I mean is this. They believed that God would set up a literal earthly kingdom. There's nothing wrong with that. You know why? Because God is one day going to set up a literal earthly kingdom. One of the things that they missed within the, the scope of what the Savior taught is that at the point that Israel is a nation, uh, their religious leadership and their civil leadership rejected the ministry of the Messiah Christ from that point forward ceases to begin preaching or ceases to preach to them the the idea of a a literal kingdom imminently being set up upon this earth. Up to that moment he was. He was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was telling them any moment now the, the kingdom of heaven will be set up and you need to be ready and prepared for that moment. But from that moment forward in Matthew chapter 12, he ceases to talk to the nation about the kingdom, and instead starts to talk to his disciples about the king. And what he talks about, he gives a list of of mysteries and of parables about the kingdom of heaven and describes how it's going to appear during this dispensation that they were not aware of yet that we call the dispensation of grace or of the church age. 
And he describes how that, you know, it would be like a, like a mustard seed that would start small and grow into a great and vast tree. He talks about it, uh, like a, uh, you know, piece of, uh, of dough that, that, you know, uh, leaven is put into and it, and it fills up the rest of it. He gave example after example of what that would look like and, and what that would mean. But the disciples, much like my kids are and much like your kids are, here's how that conversation went. They come to the Lord, they'd say, Lord, you gonna set up your kingdom? He'd look at them and he'd say, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. And they'd say, okay. Lord, are you going to set up your kingdom now? And he would look at them and he would say, my kingdom is going to be like this mustard seed or it's going to be like this leaven or it's going to be like a pearl or it's going to be like a hid treasure. And they go, oh, okay. Are you going to set up your kingdom now? And he would say, the Son of Man will go up to Jerusalem and be crucified by wicked men and killed, and on the third day he'll rise again. It's okay. Are you going to set up your kingdom now? And here we find them at the close of our Lord's earthly ministry. I mean, you understand, they are like one footstep away from just stepping into the New Testament church, right? I'm talking about, they're like, they're one footstep away from just having church like you and I have church. And they're still asking this question, Lord, wilt thou at this time? The Lord has not hidden the ball about this matter. He's been abundantly clear to them. He's already told them, hey, listen, I go away <laughs> to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will doubtless come again and receive you unto myself. I guess to that they said, well, thou at this time, restore your kingdom to Israel. And so here's the problem. They have lost their focus and they are waiting for God to work in a specific matter while at the same time dismissing and disregarding the ways in which God is working on a daily basis. Can I tell you, we sometimes get so hung up on that thing we think God will do that we miss all the things that God is doing. We sometimes get so fixed on the problem that we're facing that we miss all of the miracles that are occurring. And they, in their life, they're waiting and what they want is not bad. It's not wrong. In fact, it's biblical but they're desirous to see this kingdom restored again to Israel and everything set right and there to be no problems and there to be no heartache and there to be no suffering. And notice not only the anticipation of the disciples, but notice the answer of the Lord here in verse 7. He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. This is a fascinating verse. If we just divide it into about three sections, we find that each of them gains or contains some profound truth that I think is often missed in that verse. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, notice this. He said, it is not for you to know. I think sometimes we think to ourselves that what the Lord's saying is you're not worthy of knowing. But that's not what the Lord's saying. He's not saying you don't deserve to know. He's not saying you're not worthy of knowing. What he's saying is this. You don't need to know. Oh man, my soul, I need this tonight. I don't know if you need it, but I need it. Hey, listen, I need to know that sometimes I don't need to know. I'm serious. I need to know that there's times in my life when I think I need to know something. I don't just want to know it. I think I desperately must know it. I think I can't go on without knowing it. But the reality is this. Apart from saving grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing in this life that you have to know to go forward. There are some things if you knew about your life that would stop you from going forward. 
He's not saying I'm angry at you and I don't want you to know. He's not saying you've not earned the right or you've not passed muster or you've not proven yourself. He's saying it would hurt you more to know than it hurts you not to know. You know, the reality is this. Sometimes we get upset at the Lord because He don't consult us first. I don't know where we got this idea that God is supposed to be consulting us. But we get upset because we don't understand what God's doing. You find me anywhere in this Bible that it says you will always understand what God's doing. Find me somewhere where it says if God zigs when you thought he was going to zag, he's not God anymore. The fact of the matter is God, not just as a matter of, of occasionally, but more often than not. You know why? Because His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I don't know why we'd believe that we're so smart and have it so figured out that God's just always going to act like we would expect Him to. And if He hasn't, it's not us that's mistaken. It must be Him. Now, the fact is, the Lord is reminding them, you think you need to know this, but you don't need to know this. Notice this next phrase. He says this, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. Now, that's interesting language, times and seasons. It's rich with biblical context and heritage. There are times that the Bible describes explicitly times and seasons. And times when the Bible even says that we ought to know times and seasons. He rebuked the Pharisees over the fact that they did not understand the times and the seasons. And certainly our Bible is is chock full of truth and information to clue us in on the times and seasons of God's calendar and working in this world at large. But you know what I found? Those ain't the times and seasons we get upset about. Hey, it's not. How do I say this? It ain't that we're so concerned with the world's tribulation. We're concerned with our tribulation. It's not that we're so concerned about when the Lord will show up in this world. It's that we're concerned about when he'll show up in our world. And here in this passage, he's not saying bury your head in the sand, pretend like you don't care, never ask God for guidance or wisdom, far from it. Rather, what he's saying is this, there are some things that God has put in his own power and those things it would be detrimental for you to know. You know why? Because you go stick your finger in the cake and mess up the whole project. The fact of the matter is this, if it's in his power... It's in his purview. And we don't have to know. Uh, There certainly we should understand the times and seasons which are within our power. And there are times and seasons within our power. Listen to me tonight. If you're here and you're not saved and stranger things have happened than an unsaved person walking into church on a Sunday night. If you're here and you're not saved, can I tell you there's a time and a season in your power right now. And that's when you're going to come to Christ and believe on him. That is in your power right now. Nobody can make you do that. God won't make you do that. You have to choose to do that. That that time and season, that's, that's within your power. I'll say this to you, child of God. Hey, the time and season of your faith and trust in Him, that's in your power. Here's what I'm saying tonight. There's lots of things within our power. Why are we focused on what's only and exclusively within His power? The Lord is reminding them. He's not saying you're helpless. He's not saying there's no answer to any of these questions. What he's saying is this. Why are you focused on my business and not your business? 
Why are you focused on what only I can do instead of on what only you can do? And I'll tell you that your Christianity, it will be, uh, mm, your Christianity will be far more productive if you'll focus on what only you can do as opposed to what only others can do and what only God can do. I'm interested in not only that phrase. He said unto them, it's not for you to know. He's not saying I'm mad at you. He's not saying that, that you don't deserve it. He's saying it's not for you to know. It's not appropriate. It wouldn't help you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. There are things in our power. But then let me say this. There are some things that just because they're outside of our power does not mean they're outside of his power. In fact, can I give you a precious truth here tonight? That thing that you can't get an answer from God on, it's in his power. That's why he don't give you an answer. We say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And often no answer comes. Why? Well, it might be no answer is needed. Because he's going to do something that you never could. It's a real blow to our ego, isn't it? To have to admit God's better at this thing of being God than we are. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the human spirit and disposition. That ain't just you and that ain't just me. That's everybody. And to recognize that just because something's beyond our power doesn't mean it's beyond his power. And to recognize that if it's within his power and outside of our power, it is also outside of our consultation. There's no reason for him to tell us. Uh, we have this idea as, as though God's just sharing information with us. What? To uh, ease and alleviate our anxieties? Our anxieties are not eased and alleviated by the information we receive, but rather by the faith that we exercise. Uh, that's the truth that we learn from the book of Job. God shows up in the book of Job. And he don't answer none of Job's questions. For 30-something chapters, Job's been asking questions. God don't answer any of them. God shows up and begins to ask Job questions. Like, where were you when I created everything? Where were you when I did this? How do you think all these things get took care of, Job? <laughs> you think this world runs itself? No, hey, listen. What's he trying to do? He's trying to get Job to fundamentally understand it's not the things that you don't know that are harming you. It's the things that you do know but are refusing to recognize that are harming you. What you know to be true about God. By the way, God didn't in his questions tell Job anything he didn't already know about God. He just, listen, he didn't need to be re-educated. He needed to be reminded. He needed to be, he needed to have his, his, uh, you know, uh, uh, holy mind, his, his sanctified mind, his precious mind stirred up by way of remembrance. And he had to be reminded that though he was not in control, that didn't mean there was nobody at the controls because God is always in control. So, preacher, if I just knew, if I just knew, then it would be better. Well, if it would be better, God would let you know. And now this comes down to being a matter of faith, this thing of patience. Are we willing to trust Him when we're not enjoying trusting Him? Are we willing to trust Him when even in trusting Him, we have anxiety, apprehension, fear, and nervousness? The fact is, faith does not always just effectuate some supernatural ease of our anxiety in our life. If it did, there'd be no need to consistently lean on Him. The truth of the matter, you say, Preacher, if I just knew, if I just knew, if I just knew, the Lord's answer is there's some things they wouldn't help you, they'd hurt you if you knew. And the things that you need to know, I'll tell you when you need to know. 
And what you really need to do is instead of relying upon the process, rely upon my promise. Instead of relying upon your circumstances, rely upon your Savior. Instead of relying upon things going well, just uh, you know, rely on the judge of all the earth doing well because he never changes and he always does right. He gives them a word of patience that he left with them. Look with me at verse number 8. The Bible says this, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Don't you hate it? I remember growing up, I hated it when I asked my parents a question and got a chore in response. That ever happened to you? I was thinking about this before the service started tonight. I remember when I was in school, and you all probably had a different name for it when you were in school, whether you're older or younger, you probably had a different name for it. But in school, we used to have this thing we called seat work. Did you ever have seat work? Anybody know what seat work is? And I guess that was my own peculiar measure of abuse that I endured. Amen. But uh seat work was busy work. Seat work would be things like diagram this sentence, even though never once in anyone's life has anyone put a gun to their head and said, so help me, I'm going to shoot you dead if you don't diagram this sentence. (laughs) Never once has a plane been getting ready to nosedive, and the pilot came across the intercom and said, quick, somebody diagram a sentence! (laughs) Never once, (laughs) never once was anybody ever in a busy restaurant, and somebody said, he's choking! Is there an English teacher here? (laughs) We'd have to do things like that, diagram sentences, you know, and... Uh, different things like that. And, and I never knew. This is probably some weird 4D level of, 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 of cruel emotional abuse. They actually called it seat work. You know why? Because it kept us in our seats. That was what it was designed to do. Didn't make us smarter. It just made us sit still. Well, you'd call it busy work or seat work or whatever you want to call it. Cruel and unusual punishment, I think is what the Constitution calls it. But, uh, Amen. what? right he went to school with me that's why he says that however (laughs) however we might define it the idea was this we'll give you something to do to keep you out of trouble and it's interesting there's been times in my life i remember i'd go to my parents and i'd ask them something and then all of a sudden i'd wind up with a chore and you had to be careful doing that you'd go you'd ask what time we was leaving go to the ball game wind up mowing the yard not even know how it happened because they were saying go do something and get out of my hair can i tell you this We need a purpose. We need a purpose. Much of what you're seeing in the complete disintegration of Western civilization is due to a lack of purpose. All of the tinsel and all of the glittering, uh, you know, uh, uh, veneer has been stripped away. And men are beginning to recognize that there's no meaningful purpose in politics or in education or in culture or in any of these things. These things have been so degraded and so demeaned and so just absolutely gutted of any value and significance that now when they seek to use them as some sort of of cultural launching pad to give people a sense of purpose, it don't even work anymore. And we're living in a society of, of rootless and purposeless individuals. And it's destroying us. I'm glad when the Lord left, He left us with a purpose. He didn't just say, well, just hang out, I'll be back. (laughs) He said, no, there's a work that needs to be done. Let's say it this way. He gives them a word of purpose to direct their activity. 
And notice two things he says about it. Number one, that they were equipped for this purpose. He says, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Time would fail us to say everything that ought to be said about this little short phrase. But here I think is the heartbeat of what the Lord is trying to communicate. I've given you a great work, but I've also given you a great power wherewith to carry out that work. The work of God is bigger than any of us. I've often sort of chuckled it within myself when I think about the notion of uh, door-to-door soul winning. I'm for it, by the way. We do it around here. We do it through our new mover ministry. We don't, we don't just canvas an area. We go directed to specific addresses, but we do that around here. We go door knocking. And um, I, I've always thought, what, what, a, what a, an absurd proposition that we would go and stand on someone's front porch and in a matter of a few moments completely untangle 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of error, confusion, and hard-heartedness, and then be able to in its place articulate clearly a truth that's so big that the greatest preachers that have ever lived have never fully been able to exhaust its richness. And that we would take all (laughs) a big God and try to somehow pour Him into a puny mind and a puny heart. It's impossible. You understand that? I like what the songwriter said, the greatest of all miracles was when Jesus saved me. Because the truth of the matter is, when somebody gets born again, I I don't care if they're 8 or 80, when somebody gets born again, it's a miracle that took all of the power and glory of heaven to be poured out to carry out. It's a big thing. Aren't you glad we ain't got to go out and do it on our own? (laughs) It's always funny to me. And people are just kind. They are. They're very gracious and they're very kind. They're very patient with the pastor. But every single week I have multiple people that will come to me after service and say, Preacher, you knew exactly what I was going through. You dealt with something I was going through, something I was experiencing. Can I tell you, it ain't in this old boy to do that. How would How would you even do that? I mean, you understand. You ever written your spouse like an anniversary card? When you only have to speak directly to one person, you struggle to do it let alone to speak to a whole room full of people and see their hearts touched by it. I'm saying this, it's beyond what you or I could do. And that's the very point of it. That's not incidental. That's deliberate. It's beyond us so that it won't be of us, but rather so that it will be of Him. Preacher, I can't do the work of God. I couldn't witness to people. I couldn't have a testimony in this world. Sure you could. Well, no, let me back up and agree with you. You're right, you can't. But God in you can. And so He's equipped you for this purpose. Not only were they equipped for this purpose, but they were instructed in this purpose. Number one question to any task is this. Where do we start? It's been said before that a great start makes a great ending. That a great beginning makes a great finish. And if we can just set out and start, that half the battle has already been won. And I'm glad we ain't got to figure out how to do it. He tells us, ye shall be witnesses unto me. Tells me what we're supposed to be doing, right? I'm to be a witness unto him. I'm to go out and tell the world who he is, what he did for others, what he did in me, and what he can do for them. That's my job. My job is to go and tell them who he is. And what he can do for them. You shall be witnesses unto me. Where do we do that? Unto both uh, in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. It's been oft noted, and I'll note it again tonight, that the Lord Jesus, what he's doing is plotting a course for the gospel as the apostles would carry it forth, and it did happen in exactly that way. They were obedient to this command. But he is also enforcing a principle in our lives that we begin at home and we don't stop till everyone's heard. You listen to me? We begin at home and we don't stop till everyone's heard. Right now, I don't know why this is, pastors draw people their own age. People think they can connect to a pastor that's their age. That's not necessarily true. We may have nothing in common. You understand that, right? You know, I've spent the last, like, 12 years hanging out with old people. My whole cultural milieu is is Gunsmoke and Werther's Originals, and that's my world. But young people, they look at somebody the same age as them, and by the way, that's why there's typically an art to ministry, right? When a pastor is really, 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 really young, it takes some time to get some momentum going, right? Because... This isn't always true, but sometimes it's true that young people are flaky. Uh, that they, they, they don't they don't have anything tying them down yet, you know, and life hasn't beaten them down yet. Uh, and, and then they'll get up, they'll get about about my age, and the church will be very very active, right? Very very energetic and very very active, and I'll have a lot of kids ministries and things like that. Why? Because we all got kids and we're all active, and unfortunately we've not figured out a way for our kids to be one place and us to be another place. So if we're going to be where they're at, we might as well be doing something for the Lord. And then often as a pastor ages a little further, when he gets into like his mid-40s and and his 50s, often that's when they start building buildings. You know why? Because all the people they've been pastoring for 20 years finally got good jobs. (laughs) And they're tithing real money. And then often as a pastor ages, you'll find that his congregation will age with him. And when he gets into his 60s and 70s, people that he won to the Lord and people that he saw uh, saved, they're beginning to age as well. And and that's, you know, and God's designed it by that. We can try to fight against that. But hey, listen, God's got a purpose in all that. This thing ain't about me and it ain't about you. If the Lord tarries is coming, the sun will set on my life. I'll be eclipsed by the march of history. And that's okay because it ain't about me. It's about Jesus Christ. We ain't building empires around here. That ain't what we're interested in. We're just interested in magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ during this time that God has placed us in this world. And so right now we've got a lot of young families with young kids. Can I tell you something? Your first ministry, your Jerusalem, is in that the four walls of that house that you live in. You start there. You start at home. To preach, I want to do great things for God. Great. Do them at home first. And you'll find that if you'll be faithful with that, God will extend it beyond that. He's giving a process and a path and a pattern here. He's given us a word of purpose to direct our activity. I got to hasten. I said it was going to be short and and it, and and I lied. Verse 9 says this, When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Here's what he gave them. Gave them a word of patience to direct their attitude. He gave them a word of purpose to direct their activity. But finally, he gave them a word of promise to direct their anticipation. He left, but he left behind word that he's coming back again. 
We need hope. I think that very often in this life, there's, there is a larger emphasis placed upon the concept of faith than there is of hope. And I think it's because we have a wrong idea about what hope is. We view hope as this sort of anemic concept, this idea that it is somehow injected and, and, and imbued with doubt and with anxiety. Like, well, I, I hope so. I, I hope this happens. But Bible hope is not an immune or is not is not an anemic concept. Bible hope is an activating, energizing reality. It is a it is a confirmed, confident zeal concerning the promises of God. We could say this way that uh, if faith is what directs our outward actions, hope is what uh, maintains our inward excitement. Man, we need hope. You know how I know we need hope? Because over and over again, the Lord gave us things that were meant to give us hope. You lose hope in your life. There's not much that can help you. And so he gives them this word of promise to give them a a, a spark of hope in their life and something to hang on to. Notice two things about their hope. Notice, number one, the engagement of their hope. (laughs) I can just see them old boys standing there slack-jawed, staring up into the sky. Wondering, what does this mean now? I'd probably been the worst one. I'd have been just standing there. I'd have, I'd have, I, I, the, the sun would have come by. I'd have still been staring. It would have burned my corneas off. Not my corns. My corneas. Amen. <laughs> Some of y'all are going to be laying out in the yard with your feet out in the sun saying, Preacher said this burned them corns off. Amen. Cornea. And uh, I would have been just like them. But I like what the angel says, which also said, ye men of Galilee, and he asked him a question. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? I love it. He looked down and said, what are you doing? (laughs) And you know what? They had no good answer for it. The truth of the matter is, his word of promise is the engagement of our hope. Hope's not a passive thing. Hope's not a theoretical thing. We think of hope as theoretical because we use it imbued with the idea of doubt. I hope this comes to pass. But biblical hope sets its grip firmly upon God's promise and says, now let's march forward and live in light of this truth. And so when they're standing around doing nothing but staring up towards heaven, he says, what are you doing? Get busy. I love the biblical balance. Hey, listen, for those that can only stare at their feet, God says, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. But for those that only want to stand and stargaze in abstract theoretical theology, he says, what you looking up here for? Your work is down there. Tells me this, I need both in my life. There's times I need to look up from the field and be refreshed by looking towards glory. But there's times that, I mean, listen, if I had my way, all we'd do, we'd just sit around and look towards glory till he broke the eastern sky. But that's not what we're called to do. There's times I'm commanded to take my eyes from upward and put them on the field. The truth is, he wants us busy. He wants us busy. God's never been blessed by laziness. He wants us busy. He wants us working. He wants us labor. God does not begrudge us coming away for a season and resting. And God understood and understands that we need repose and we need recharging. But listen, we ought to view our lives not as something passive, but active in the work of God. I'm not just sitting here staring at heaven waiting for Jesus to come back. Hey, there's, if that's what you want, 
And I'm not suggesting that's what anyone in this room wants. But I'm just saying, if that's what you want, there's churches all over town that that's all they do. I could call them by name. There's churches. They got together today. Nobody was challenged. Nobody was convicted of the way they were living. Nobody was asked to look at their own life. All they did was get together, look up towards heaven, and wait for Jesus to come back. Can I tell you, there's too much work to do for us to indulge that and nothing more. There's churches that got together, and that's all they were interested in. There's some of them, hey, some of them, some of them's lowbrow and they just got together and have what they called church. Some of them's highbrow and has people with, with, with more uh, degrees in them than a thermometer standing in the pulpit and they got up with all their, their theoretical theology that's never meant to really touch the heart of man, but is only meant to inflate and to puff up their knowledge and their pride. And all they're doing is just sitting there staring up towards heaven. Meanwhile, there's a whole world dying and going to hell. I see the engagement of our hope, man. We, if we have biblical hope, it'll make us busy. But then I see the fulfillment of our hope. Look at the end, verse 11. This same Jesus. Man, I like that. He ain't going to change. He ain't going to change. He's going to look a lot different when he comes back than when he left. You understand that. I mean, he's, but here, here's the difference, right? Uh, he's going to be for those that know him what he was towards those that didn't know him when he came before. But when he comes back, he's going to be towards those that do not know him as he really would have been had he not in love and mercy been carrying out the work of redemption. When he comes back, he's not coming as the meek Galilean. He's not coming as as the meek shepherd of the people of the scattered flock of Israel. He's coming back with 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 a sword, with his vesture dipped in blood, with a name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hey, but for those that look for Him, shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He's going to be this same Jesus for you and I. He's going to be this same Jesus for you and I. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come. Not not He might come. Not if it works out, He'll come. Not if He gets time to do it, He'll come. He shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go into heaven. You need the promise of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great comfort and it's a great motivator. If we didn't need it, He wouldn't have left it with us. Of three things He said on that day when He left, one of them was, don't worry about things that are God's business and His alone. Trust Him and follow Him and serve Him even when you don't understand. He told Him, I've got a work for you to do. It'll begin in Jerusalem and it'll carry to the outermost part of the earth, and I'll equip you for this work and this calling. And don't worry, I'm coming back for you one day. Man, I'm glad. I'm glad we've got everything we need. He said, Preacher, what do we need? Do we need some new thing? No, we need what we already got. We just got to use it. Anybody got a house so full of junk that you're finding stuff you're about to buy? Finding stuff you already got. You ever went to buy something and found a, a, the, one of them sitting in the blister pack somewhere in your house that you bought last time? That's not only a, a, a symptom of prosperity, it's a symptom of ab- absent-mindedness, amen? You forgot you bought it. <laughs> what you need is not something new. What you need is to rediscover what you already had. And you preach, what do I need? Do I need something new? No, you've got everything you need. You just need to go back. You don't need to dig a new well. You just need to draw a new drink of water. You don't need to to dig a new well. The well ain't run dry. 
You just need to go back and get another drink. You just need to, you just need to rely upon Him and you need to find refreshing in His presence this evening. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I invite you to come tonight. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. If God has addressed your heart in some matter, then don't wait. Just meet Him down here in this altar. Don't make Him chase you. Just meet Him down here. Father, bless this invitation. I love you, Lord. You're so good to me. Pray that you'd bless the invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask it in Christ's precious name.